Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I've never seen you more angry. I'm not going to let them do that. The ICJ did not issue a ceasefire order. It did not say that uh, Israel needs to desist from undertaking uh, its potential act of genocide. Why didn't it do it? Why did it fall short from for mentioning a ceasefire? In terms of its um, compliance with the International Court of Justice order, is to stop targeting schools, stop targeting hospitals, mm-hmm. stop targeting civilians, stop targeting residential buildings, reinstate food, water and humanitarian aid. Since the judgment, I think in the order of 200 additional uh, Gazans have been have been killed. Oh, I made a prediction last time that somebody yeah. should trigger the genocide convention. I'll yeah. make another prediction yeah. now. What I'm finding is that as each day goes on, and we're finding more and more evidence to support those complaints. That speed of action by Western states didn't seem to replicate the speed of action for an actual court ruling. They see Unraze as, as something that needs to be destroyed. If you if you believe in something, yeah. right, and that's being ripped away from you, from the people that tell you to believe in it. The recent ICJ interim order has been interpreted in many ways by its proponents, but hail it as a victory and its opponents that denounce it as an anti-Israeli conspiracy. But many have questioned the efficacy of the interim order, pointing to the ICJ's lack of enforcement and the absence of an explicit mention of a ceasefire. To help us understand the complexities surrounding the judgment, we have invited, at short notice, Tayyab Ali in once again. Tayyab Ali is a lawyer specialising in international law. He is a partner at the legal firm Bindman's. He has represented clients at the Supreme Court and the European Court of Human Rights, as well as the international political and legal institutions, including the United Nations, the International Criminal Court and the African Commission of Human and People's Rights. Tayyab Ali, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome back to The Thinking Muslim. Welcome, Aslam. Thanks very much for having me again. Well, Tayyab, we are at a a febrile time, I think, in in international relations. And I think you're at the centre in many ways uh, of um, uh, this discussion about the legality surrounding Israel's actions in Gaza. Now, 
we've had a few days back this interim judgment or order from the ICJ. Can you just talk us through the basic conclusions of the ICJ? Yeah, I mean, what are the last few days, right? So um, if you look, I just want to sort of give a bit of a preamble to this before Please. I explain what happened at the International Court of Justice, because and what I found in my own discussions about this uh, and my own explanations about this is that the judgment, notwithstanding what it actually means, which we'll come to in a minute, mm. has really polarised commentators. Yeah. Um, so you've got one group of people that are lauding this as a victory for South Africa and stating that everything that South Africa wanted it got and its, uh, its, its triggering of the Genocide Convention was absolutely justified. And then you've got a completely different group of people who are stating that it's a complete victory for Israel mm. and that everything Israel wanted, it got from this judgment. And it proves that South Africa as triggering of the Genocide Convention isn't right or proper. Mm. And within that, there is uh, vitriol. There's clear hatred developing between two parties, some of it from some quite surprising quarters. And so you see, for example, you have um, the situation with UNRWA, um, and, and that's really relevant to this conversation yeah. where um, the response in, in, in essence from Western states, and I, and I say Western states, including Japan yeah. in that group, is to suspend funding. Mm. Now, there's a couple of reasons why that may have happened. And some people may think it's because of the ICJ's decision making. Mm. Some people may think it could be something else, but we'll, come, we'll talk we'll come about that, that in a moment. Yeah. And ju just to talk about what actually happened at the international Court of, Court of justice yes um i want to i want to go through that but i have to be very careful because it's almost as if if you even read out the judgment word for word verbatim and some of that i'm going to do i'm going to take the time to do that with you please when when you read out the judgment you will have commentators who are in support of israel just write the comments and um, in your posts or or your writing liar right just regardless of whether all you're doing is literally relaying what the judges said in the ICJ and I find that phenomenal I find that really surprising and I also find that really dangerous oh, yeah. but in, in the meantime what what did the ICJ do okay so first of all let's just look at a bit of background here mm. South Africa triggered its obligations of the genocide convention and mm. um, what South Africa viewed in its own uh, in, as a duty for itself was that it had to uh, do something about the situation in Gaza, the Israeli attack on Gaza after 7th of October, mm. because what it considered was happening, the allegation that it made, was that Israel was perpetrating acts which amounted to genocide. And I'm just going to, going to read out, again, I said I'm going to be very specific in what I say, I'm going to read out what that means. So genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial or religious group such as killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, force, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So, so that, in, in essence, is what the allegation by South Africa to uh, the ICJ was about Israel. Now, now, the way that the court talks about these is the Palestinians' right not to suffer those things. Yeah. So when you're talking about the decision that it made and what was plausible and what was not plausible and what it thought, that, that's the way it encapsulates that. So the Palestinians have a right not to suffer, suffer these allegations or th these acts um, under Article 2 of the Genocide Convention. Mm. 
And so what what the what had to happen is that the uh, South Africa lodged the complaint to which interestingly. I think the day after we had the, our That's last fine. discussion about this very topic, yeah. and we were imploring somebody to do something, and, yes. and it happened almost yeah. so timely. Um, but in, in in this situation, the uh, government of South Africa, their lawyers, triggered the Genocide Convention by submitting an application to the ICJ to determine whether or not the acts that Israel is perpetrating in Gaza were, in fact, acts of genocide. Mm. Now, there's a process that goes through that. That decision, that, that determination has not been made yet and won't be made for a, a year, maybe two years. That, that will happen after a full trial once both parties have provided evidence, one by South Africa of what they say and support their contention and one by Israel responding to why that's not right. Mm. Um, but in the meantime, what South Africa said to the ICJ was that we are really worried that the rights that we're trying to protect to the Palestinian people will um, be violated by Israel to a degree that when you make your judgment in a year or two years or three years time, right. it won't make any difference because the genocide is happening now. The allegation of genocide is now. Yeah. Um, and if we don't do something right now, we will um, end up with a situation where it won't make any difference. Mm. So it'll be a historic thing and you can do something about it now. And in, in legal proceedings, when something like that happens, you can effectively apply for an injunction, provisional right. measures. Yeah. And that's what happened. And that's what the decision was about okay. last week. Yeah. Now, now I want to also explain what the court had to do to get to a position where it decided that it was going to issue provisional measures because it did. Hmm. Now, South Africa wanted a ceasefire. Let's just be clear about that. Yes. And it didn't get a ceasefire. We'll right. talk about what that means yes. in a moment. Um, so, so in order for the ICJ to, ICJ to accept a claim like the one that South Africa made, it has to go through a number of hurdles. The first thing it has to decide is whether it has jurisdiction to decide whether or not South Africa's allegations are something it's going to accept. Hmm. And in order for um, the ICJ to do that, so what, what is the ICJ? The ICJ is the World Court. It's a court that arbitrates between states. There, there are other forums that this can happen, but this is a forum where you have a particular treaty and that treaty is in dispute between two parties. So there has to be a disagreement, a dispute. So the first test for the ICJ was, was there actually a dispute between South Africa and Israel? South Africa stated that there was a dispute because they had accused um, Israel of genocide and asked them to stop behaving in that way. Yeah. Uh, so Israel had claimed that that wasn't the case because they hadn't yet got to a situation where there was a dispute. Mm. They hadn't had re yet responded to this. What the ICJ decided was there was in fact a dispute. And so they accepted that this dispute was something that should be properly determined by the International Court of Justice. And the reason for that is because the Genocide Convention um, has within it the, uh, um, the, that any state, any, any dispute within the convention should be determined by the ICJ, the World Court. Okay? So that's the first thing that it had to determine, and it determined that in South Africa's favour. The second thing that it had to determine was um, whether or not South Africa had standing to bring the claim. Now, interestingly enough, Israel did not object to this in, in any particular terms. So South Africa said, yes, we have standing to bring this claim because we are part of the Genocide Convention in the same way that Israel is. And so the International Court of Justice accepted the second test, right. which is that South Africa had standing to bring the case. And the third part, that's really the most important part in, in terms of what happened. Once you got through these two parts, and you remember I, I discussed that, um, the way that 
the court looks at um, the acts of genocide is in terms of the rights of the individuals to be protected from them. Mm. And what it had to do was to determine whether the allegations that South Africa made with its full application were not true in the sense that they were completely made out and, and Israel was guilty of genocide, but actually whether or not um, they were plausible. And plausible means on a, that there was sufficient evidence upon which to build a case. So if, for example, um, just as an example, if Israel had responded to South Africa's claim that they'd bombed one building on one occasion only, and let's say um, a person that had died in that was actually a militant, mm. okay, mm. they could quite easily bring a claim to say, well, you know, this is a bit far-fetched, mm. and this is not plausible that this is an act of genocide because it's a very limited, very limited situation. Yeah. Well, what the ICJ did was that it found that the allegations made by South um, South Africa against Israel were plausible. And um, the, so the ICJ found the allegations to be plausible and actually outlined the difficult part of the case, which is that the statements made by Israeli politicians that support the intent to commit genocide, they actually relayed those as being part of the grounding for why it found the acts to be plausible. Now, the, this is a really important issue. It's not that it made a finding that genocide was happening. Right. It didn't do that. Yeah. South Africa knows that that wasn't the position. Any honest lawyer or commentator knows that wasn't as, what was at that stake. That was never going to it happen. It was not, not at this stage. Right. A lot more evidence needs to be presented. A lot sure. more argument needs to be had about that. Yeah. This was just a preliminary hearing mm. to determine whether South Africa had standing, whether the court had jurisdiction, and whether the acts of genocide were plausible or not. Right. So was then the judgment really that consequential if it was just an interim order? Yeah, so let, let's, let, let's, let's read out a couple of paragraphs Please. from the um, judgment yeah. because this is where... You know, in, in I've noticed over the last few weeks, over the last couple of days, um, where you're trying to explain the things I've explained to you, mm. people are just not understanding it. Yeah. And they're not only not understanding it, they're actually dismissing it as not being the case. Right. So let's look at um, paragraph 58 of the judgment. And I'm going to read this out here if you don't mind. Mm. The court has already, so this is, this is in the court um, discussion as to whether or not it's going to issue provisional measures. Provisional measures uh, are the orders that, the court wants to impose on Israel to stop a particular act. And in order to do that, uh, let's just talk about how the court came to that position. So paragraph 58, the court has already found, and then it says bracket, see paragraph 54 above, that at least some of the rights asserted by South Africa under the Genocide Convention are plausible. Those rights to be protected from the de de definition of genocide that I read out in the beginning. Yeah. Then let's go to paragraph 54 because it refers to paragraph 54. In the court's view, the facts and circumstances mentioned above are sufficient to conclude that at least some of the rights claimed by South Africa and for which it is seeking protection are plausible. This is the case with respect to the right of the Palestinians in Gaza to be protected from acts of genocide and related prohibited acts identified in Article 3 and the right of South Africa to seek Israel's compliance with the latter's obligations under the Convention. It's quite straightforward. Yeah. Okay. I just want to fast forward to paragraph 78. Because I, I think it's important to explain what is the substance underneath those th those discussions. So what rights are there that um, the ICJ found were plausible? And, and let's read out paragraph 78. And, and this is how the ICJ came to a decision that it needed to make provisional orders. And I'll come to that in a moment. The court considers that with regard to the situation described above, Israel must, in accordance with its obligations under the Genocide Convention, in relation to Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of Article 2 of this convention. In particular, A, killing members of the group, B, causing serious bodily 
or mental harm to members of the group. C. Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. And D. Imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. The court recalls that these acts fall within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention when they are committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a group such as, and Nigel refers back to paragraph 44. Mm. Um, so, so when you're looking at this, what the court is saying um, on South Africa's application is that we are going to issue um, provisional measures, orders, for you to restrict certain acts or do certain acts. And the reason we're going to do that is because if you continue to act in the way that you're currently acting, the harm that you're going to do to Palestinians will be irreparable. Mm. Okay. And so what it's saying is that there's a prima facie case. There is a case to suggest that that irreparable harm could constitute acts of genocide. It's plausible that they could constitute acts of genocide. And that's profound. And, and what, the question that you asked, which my very long-winded answer was for, but I think it's really important to be precise and to, to, to explain the judgment in detail. What, what, what is, is it enforceable? Is it not enforceable? Well, the other thing that Israel was ordered to do was to present a report in one month right. to the ICJ. So the ICJ could look to see whether or not what Israel is actually doing or not is um, um, amounting to compliance with its orders or not. Mm. And then and then the ICJ can, in its own right, refer this to the Security Council or somebody else, another state party could refer it to the Security Council or the General, General Assembly for Action if it finds that it's not, or even um, the ICJ could issue further, harsher provisional measures. Mm. But what does this mean? It means that when you're thinking about whether um, what Israel is doing on the ground and what impact that has for you as, an, as, a, as another state or as a charity or as a bank or as any third party linked to Israel, including businesses, is you now have a court, a court which is saying in no uncertain terms that the acts within Article 2 of the Genocide Convention, those matters that we wrote out and yeah. read out earlier on, are, are plausible in the terms of Israel's activity. So what does that mean for a state or anybody else supporting Israel in those activities? It could mean that they are uh, complicit in those acts. And that's a really dangerous position for people to take in, in order to continue to do whatever acts they're doing. For example, providing financing if you're a bank, providing uh, weaponry if you're a weapons company, hmm. providing moral, political support if you're a state. So let's look at some of the criticisms levied at the uh, interim order or the provisional uh, um, judgment that you've, you've just mentioned there. Uh, one criticism is exactly what you said at the start. Uh, the ICJ did not issue a ceasefire order. It did not say that uh, Israel needs to desist from undertaking uh, its potential act of genocide. I mean, why didn't it do it? Why did it fall short from, from mentioning a ceasefire? What you'll see is that when a court issues an order, yeah. the order is usually, courts don't like issuing orders which are not practical. Okay. Right. So when it's issuing an order with regards to um, these particular proceedings, yeah. the parties that are involved in this are Israel, number one, and uh, South Africa, number two. So it can make orders that are binding on those two states. Uh -huh. Okay, What it can't do is it can't make orders binding on Hamas or on the Palestinian people because they're not a state in the context of this battle. At least they're not a state in the context of party to these proceedings. So unless, for example, um, uh, 
the registrar under Article 63 makes the Palestinian Authority the state of Palestine part of these proceedings, its orders are not binding on it. And so you find a distinction in the International Court of Justice's uh, and, uh, rulings where, for example, between um, the Ukraine and Russia, two states which are part of the proceedings, was a, a ceasefire order was provided there where both states become um, that comes binding on both states. But if you look at Myanmar, for the Rohingyas, for example, mm -hmm. you will find that the provisional orders are almost identical to this. Right. And so what that amounts to, it's a unilateral order against the one group, which is the Israeli group, to stop and desist very specific actions. It doesn't quite amount to a ceasefire, but it amounts to almost that. I mean, what Israel now has to do in terms of its... Um, compliance with the International Court of Justice order is to stop targeting schools, stop targeting hospitals, mm -hmm. stop targeting civilians, stop targeting residential buildings, reinstate food, water and humanitarian aid. And and that's a very specific one-sided um, issue there. Yeah. But it called on something with regards to Hamas as well. And the uh, issue that it called on with regards to Hamas is very specific. It called on Hamas to release its hostages um, or the militant groups that are holding them. Um, and that's something that it can't enforce on Hamas or militant um, groups within the uh, Palestinian territories because they're not part of the proceedings. Yeah. But, of course, because keeping hostages is uh, contrary to international law, the ICJ is able to make that call for them to release those hostages. So another criticism levied at the court is its lack of enforcement capabilities. Now, you've just suggested there that it can't enforce anything on Hamas. But of course, can it really uh, confine the activities or bind the activities of Israel? I mean, since the announcement, since the judgment, I think in the order of 200 additional uh, Gazans have been have been killed uh, in this conflict. And uh, further back, when we look at even the ceasefire um, uh, pronouncement for Ukraine and Russia, I mean, nothing really happened. Uh, both parties did not desist from undertaking the conflict. So in the absence of uh, great powers who may back the court, is the court really that, um, that able to, to hold uh, these warring parties to account? Well, you say with regards to Ukraine and Russia, nothing really happened, but yeah. a lot did happen. Uh -huh. Because you have the international community issuing massive sanctions on Russia. Right. You have the International Criminal Court being emboldened to issue arrest warrants of um, Putin. You have war crimes trials happening in uh, the Ukraine with regards to allegations of war crimes by Russian actors in that region. But that's because the international community were ready to back yeah. that court up. So, so we'll come to that. Yeah. But so, so things did happen. Uh -huh. But also, I mean, the same thing here is that, and I'll, I'll explain. You're right in drawing the distinction between the Israel community. Community, but if. Israel continues to fail to abide by these orders, mm -hmm. then what should happen? Let's talk about what should happen. The Security Council should decide to take action against Israel, including sanctions, including restricting, restricting weapons, including um, other actions that I think would support the ICJ's ruling. And if the Security Council fails to do that, then the General Assembly can discuss the same and do, 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 uh, take similar decisions. But it's also really important because now you have a situation where acts of genocide are plausible. It brings an individual obligation on states, not just parties to the um, genocide convention, but let's take state X, for example, whoever that might be, right? If state X continues to supply uh, weapons to Israel, state X is becoming potentially complicable and plausible genocide. Right. 
And so when you get to a situation where the, let's say, for example, at the end of this process, uh, the ICJ finds, for example, that uh, Israel had committed an act of genocide or acts of genocide, that state X can no longer say it wasn't on notice and didn't know. Right. It is also complicit or even potentially conspiring in that act of genocide. And, and, and that, that's a really important uh, aspect of this claim, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so it, what nation states should do across the globe is take whether or not the Security Council decides to do something or whether or not the General Assembly decides to do something. They should take individual steps to ensure to protect themselves as citizens and their institutions from being complicit or conspiring to commit acts of genocide. But are we seeing those individual steps by state X? So let's talk about the US and UK in particular, who are providing the funding and providing the weaponry uh, to to Israel. I mean, if anything, uh, they have denounced the uh, many of the provisions of the, of the judgment. And the suggestion is that they're pressing ahead with their support for Israel. Um, you know, doesn't that, in a, in a sense, point to the lack of, um, you know, compliance, I suppose, to this judgment? So, so I made a prediction last time that somebody yeah. should trigger the Genocide Convention. I'll yeah. make another prediction yeah. now, um, slightly informed prediction, actually, I'll be <laughs> fair. It's not, yeah. I'm not looking into the future. What you'll see happen over the next coming days, weeks, months, yeah. is that third states, not South Africa, um, will start to join the... Uh, case at the ICJ by mm. intervening. That's wow. what you'll see happen. Really? And so you'll see what, what's disappointing is that uh, a number of Western states have kind of dismissed, including Britain and America, have dismissed the ICJ's rulings. Yeah. That's really dangerous. You know, if you have, a, if you have uh, the rule of law in a national domestic situation and you allow your citizens to flout that, then you end up with having a breakdown not only in those rules, but wider. Because you're taking away the authority of the rules themselves and the law enforcement agencies that are um, that that are have a duty to enforce those rules. Right. So if you, for example, um, stop pulling people over, just something simple, stop mm. pulling people over driving in the motorway when they're going 100 miles per hour. You take away all the speed cameras, you'll have a breakdown in law in the sense that people start driving 100, 120 miles per hour because there'll be no accountability for that. And what will happen then? is that you'll have some serious consequences. There'll be serious accidents, people will die. Yeah. So even something as simple as that. So what you have is you, whether you like it or not, you have police um, cars sitting on the side of the motorway with speed cameras, you have speed enforcement cameras all up and down the motorway, yeah. and you have enforcement of that. You have um, people being held accountable for that. And this is really important. What I'm seeing happen in Western states is, the, is, the, is, is effectively taking the speed cameras away. And so what you've got is not only are... Um, the speed cameras being taken away, but the Western states are giving people fast cars to drive in, right? And this is a fast track, a catalyst towards breakdown of rule, yeah. rule of law and, and the rules-based order across the globe. Yeah. Because what you're going to have is you're going to have other states say, well, hang on a minute, right? I mean, let's just take Russia, for example, who's watching this, yes. right? And we've had two years of war in the Ukraine where the casualties are nothing like the casualties in Palestine over just three months. So do you think that Putin is sitting back thinking, oh my God, you know, look how important this rules-based system is? Or is it thinking, actually, I can step it up a little bit? Mm. Because if I mirror what Israel is doing to Palestinians, I can point to the lack of accountability structures being put in the place by the West and say, I'm just doing what they're doing. And, and, it's a, it's a, it's a, and, and not just Russia, other states might think about the same kind of thing. China and Taiwan, for example. Yeah. 
uh, tape. I, um, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, my understanding is that the Genocide Convention has been incorporated into statute law across many of the Western states. I think even in Britain, um, uh, there is a an act of parliament that incorporates uh, the Genocide Convention mm. into statute law. So how plausible is it for lawyers in Britain to take the British government to court over uh, its funding and over its its arming of, of Israel. It's easy. In fact, it's to take them to court is easy. The uh, pros, the, you're right, it's the International Criminal Court Act 2001, which yeah. creates, um, which criminalizes the acts of genocide crimes against humanity and war crimes on a yeah. domestic basis. Right. So if you have actors here on the ground who are complicit or acting in some way as an accessory or in, even as a first-hand party yeah. in a war crime, then you can make a complaint to our uh, Scotland Yard, to the War Crimes Investigation Unit. Uh, they, they will investigate that and they will take a decision as to whether or not to proceed in prosecuting individual actors in that. Now, you know already that yes. um, we've already lodged a complaint to yeah. Scotland Yard, which is yeah. currently being reviewed by them. Um, but as what I'm finding is that as each day goes on, um, we're finding more and more evidence to support those complaints. Mm. And, and it's not just that. At the moment, we haven't put forward a complaint uh, against United uh, Kingdom officials and politicians for being complicit in the act of genocide. We are still investigating that. Mm. But just this simple act, for example, where the ICJ has explained in its ruling the catastrophic humanitarian situation on the ground in Gaza, and the United Kingdom then decides, along with the United States and a number of other Western, sta Western countries, to withhold um, predetermined funding for UNRWA in the region, you could argue that that is uh, potentially a primary act in the allegation of genocide right. and as a conspiratorial act, because what you're saying there is that you know full well that the International Court of Justice has made a finding that there's plausible acts of genocide and a humanitarian crisis. Mm. By withdrawing this funding, you're accelerating that, the, the, the harm and the death on the ground mm. in Gaza. Now, the only way that a Western state of the United Kingdom to get around that, um, by notwithstanding that it's withheld funding, is to create very significant and urgent mechanisms to provide aid directly on the ground in Gaza. And I'll tell you something as well. As well. It's, it's a bit, I'm talking about the UNRWA uh, situation. So what that means is that yeah. a number of states have decided that on the, on, on, on the say-so of Israel, stating that some of the October 7th attackers worked for UNRWA. Yeah. Um, uh, that um, they should withdraw funding for it because it could be participating or supporting terrorism. Yeah. That, that speed of action by Western states didn't seem to replicate the speed of action for an actual court ruling <laughs> um, with regards to potential plausible genocide in Israel. Yeah. And, and you have to wonder what the motivation for that is. Mm. On the one hand, um, there has been a long record of Israelis um, wanting to dismantle and disrupt UNRWA in order to be able to uh, progress its interests within the Palestinian territories. Yeah. And so they see UNRWA as, a, as a, something that needs to be destroyed. There are politicians on record in the Knesset talking about this. And um, so on the one hand, you could just simply argue that um, the action the states have taken is just simply um, because the Israel has made a credible allegation about UNRWA yeah. and the states are just pursuing those allegations to prevent themselves being involved in terrorism. I'd find that more credible mm. if they were mirroring that with the si a similar kind of approach towards Israel. But the fact that they're not makes it not credible. 
I, I, I fear that it's a little bit more dangerous than that. Really? I feel that um, it's punishment for South Africa and the Palestinians daring to take a case to the International Court of so Justice. you do see a connection between uh, the last two days of UNRWA bashing and suspension of funding to, to UNRWA and the original judgment. I mean, I note that uh, a lot of the judgment that was made used evidence from UNRWA. Uh, so is, is there a connection, do you think, between the two? I think I think um, what I'd say to you is that let's just look at, rather than me saying whether I think there's a connection or not, in my opinion, of course, you know, uh, people could just say it's a biased opinion. Let's just look at the evidence. On the one hand, it was a day after mm. the ICJ ruling that Israel decided that suddenly it had evidence that UNRWA uh, individuals were involved in October the 7th. It's an allegation, um, which is still under investigation, whereas the ICJ has made a finding. If if the uh, Western states that withdrew funding for uh, UNRWA were also at the same time withdrawing funding for Israeli weapons, the Israeli war machine, I think I'd find it to be a proper, genuine concern. But when you continue to fund plausible the plausible genocide state yeah. and you defund the victims, the, the support for victims, I think you have to conclude in that situation that there is something nefarious happening here. And it's... It's almost, it feels almost like, yes, well, you can go to, you can go to our rules-based uh, international accountability system, but if you do, you're going to be punished for doing so. And, and that's fine, actually. Yeah. It may well be that other states have to step up. If, if the, it, it, it's, it's just a continual breaking of that fabric we spoke about last time where yeah. the, the rules that we all believed in, that we all thought were really important, and we thought were, were part of like, my job as a lawyer that I... I, I I aspire to work and promote, actually they don't really mean that much to the West. And actually the International Court of Justice was always, and the International Criminal Court, we'll talk about that in a moment, was always a tool to further imperialistic, colonialistic, or even region-based interests for the West. And now that it's being used in a way which is to protect the the victim of that imperialistic uh, um, train, if you like, right? Um, that, that suddenly it's something that we can't trust and can't believe in. I mean, to, to hear United States and the United Kingdom, along with these other states, to dismiss the International Court of Justice's rulings mm. is just phenomenal for me. It's phenomenal. Particularly where the president of the judge was an American judge. And, you know, before this, and I know you said to me in the last interview that I was very optimistic, and I remain optimistic, yes. because you, we have to talk about the situation in Gaza in the context of the rule of law and the principles of justice. We have to, we have no other choice. Right. Um, but in, 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 in this position, I remain optimistic. I think that we have to continue to push. We have to continue to call for what's right. And states around the globe that have, to some degree, if they don't mind me saying so, shirk their responsibility so far, have to step up to the plate. Mm. They have to intervene in the International Court of Justice um, proceedings. They have to fund UNRWA. They have to... Uh, support Palestinians in terms of the humanitarian aid that they need. Yeah. And this has to be immediate and urgent. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I mean, we were always told by international lawyers that um, in occupied territories, countries like Israel do not have a right to self-defense. However, one interpretation I found very prominent in the Western press, uh, especially in the American press, is that uh, the, the ruling perversely enables or gave credibility that Israel had the right to self-defense. I mean, how how valid is, is that interpretation of the ruling? So so what the ICJ, do, I, don't, I don't agree with that as a, as a proposition. Okay. I, I don't think that what it does is it agrees with the Israel being allowed to do what it's been doing over the last few weeks. And it hasn't made any judgment as to whether or not uh, what Israel is doing is self-defense or something else. Mm. Okay, so that's the final judgment. Right. If if the ju- final judgment is that what Israel was doing on the ground in Gaza is um, uh, genocide, it would never be within the context of self-defense, right. right? It just wouldn't be. It would be it would be paradoxical to be able to say yes, okay, you have the right to self-defense, but what you did was genocide. It might say that you do have the right to defend yourself, mm. but you took it so far that it ended up being enabling genocide or mm. genocide lacks. Yes. And and that's really important to think about in, in this context. I, I don't think that this I mean, if you think about what the court of um the, the ICJ actually ordered, the steps it ordered um Israel to take in its provisional um, provisional uh measures ruling is to almost stop its military action entirely. Right. Right? So how you can continue if Israel how Israel can continue to take the steps that it's been taking in any way in the same way it has done for the last three months is beyond me because I don't think it can. Yeah. I think what you'll find is in in one month's time when um, Israel and the South Africa reports back to the uh, International Court of Justice, you'll find that Israel may well be in a very difficult position. Just on that point, South Africa requested a week for them to report back. Yet yeah, the ICJ. Uh, extended that to a month. Um, I mean, how do you interpret that? Is that a sign of of the weakness? Uh, because that that has certainly come through in some of the the commentary. Uh, no, I don't think it's a sign of weakness. I think it's a sign of practicality. Okay. I think I think if you if you think about, I mean, I think as a, as a, as a judge sitting there, it took them what nearly a week to come to with just a provisional measures decision, right? Mm. So for Israel to, I think the problem that would have occurred is that. Israel in one week's time would have said, yes, we've done all these things, but there'll be no evidence to show that. Yeah. I think the work that the court is expecting Israel to do, yeah. and other states, by the way, um, is to demonstrate the measures it's taken probably within the next few days yeah. and then demonstrate that they've had an effect over the next three weeks. Because I think I think otherwise, um, there would have been no data for the ICJ to move to the next stage on. I mean, how true is, I, I read a tweet the other day, and that's probably my mistake, but I read a tweet the other day from an individual who said that the ICJ judgment uh, allows Israel to continue its prosecution of this conflict, but to do it without targeting civilians. So it's almost like a red light or green light rather to uh, to Israel to continue its war machine. How true do you think that statement is? 
I think it's extraordinarily difficult for Israel to continue to execute its war in any way mm. without breaching the provisional orders. Right. Right. Uh, I think it would have to go back to a position where, for example, if the uh, objective that Israel puts forward, which is that it wants to root out a terrorist organization within Gaza, yeah. it would have to be a restricted operation using special forces operatives against uh, a relatively small group of individuals that it considers to be a terror, part of a terrorist group. And and I'm right in saying, Ben, uh, that the United States, I think it was a spokesman in the US, suggested that the, the claim of genocide has been unfounded. Well, that's ridiculous because this is just an interim judgment. And in fact, the judgment, if, if I'm right in saying from what you're what you're suggesting there, it it gives a the plausible uh, account that a genocide may be taking place. So this idea that somehow the the interim judgment has made uh, the claim of genocide unfounded, that's nonsense. Any, anybody who says that yeah. is either ill-informed or just disingenuous. Yeah. Right. There is. They will. If if you have the ability on a public platform to be able to talk about this, right, um, then you should know that an interim judgment isn't the final judgment. Mm. Now, uh, you talked a bit about this. In fact, back, back to that point. So why doesn't, doesn't the court respond to some of these uh, claims or spin that comes out of Western capitals? You know, uh, Netanyahu has, has suggested that uh, it's a semi-positive for him. In fact, he, he, he at one stage said, you know, it's, it, it, it proves that uh, we are in the right when it comes to defending ourselves. The United States has said that claim about uh, genocide is unfounded. You know, the Brits have, in effect, said that uh, the court's, you know, judgment is is unacceptable. Uh, tr- you know, treading over the rule of law. Why doesn't the court respond to any of that um, as a as a way of of confirming all of what you've said as being the accurate interpretation of of their judgment? Well, I mean, of course, it's above that. Right. right. A court doesn't involve itself in um, a PR. Mm. machine it's it's published its judgment you can read it i think there's more um of an issue for news agencies like the bbc itv channel 4 that haven't actually explained this properly to people haven't aired it i mean you know the main news agencies in the uk as well as in other places Mm -hmm. didn't even air the uh south african claim but aired fully the israeli response to it so you people are getting a one-sided view of this but don't forget that in uh the icj's decision making It did comment on uh, senior political actors in Israel that made what it considered to be potentially genocidal statements, right? Mm -hmm. And so all these statements that are being made now are likely to be used by state parties to the proceedings, South Africa and or interveners, Mm -hmm. to demonstrate how these states have behaved despite the provisional orders. Mm -hmm. So I, I wouldn't expect them to be completely missing. I would expect them to be um, part of the proceedings in due course. So if and and, and if, for example, um, a state party, as I expect might happen, by the way, um, triggers Article 63 of the International Court of Justice statute and puts on notice other states that it wants to make orders against, in other words, states that may well be accused of being complicit in the proceedings, then you might find that the that these comments become very relevant. And so, for example, I could see a situation where a third state, if not South Africa, um, asks the registrar to bring on board the United States or the United Kingdom 
and because of the things that the politicians in those states are saying and about how they're dismissing this. Because in a way, if it's not a primary act of uh, genocide potentially because you're you're actually withdrawing aid from a position where people need that, um, then it could be a conspiracy or a complicity in it. So could that happen? And, and could the response be another interim order? Yeah, exactly. Oh. So you could end up with further orders depending on really? those other states. So if, for example, if the United Kingdom became party to uh, the proceedings and was continuing to supply weapons in a situation where... Yeah. Uh, the ICJ found that Israel was not responding to its original order, mm. you might find the ICJ becoming... Because the ICJ can only make an order on a party. So what it would do is, by its own volition, the registrar of the court mm. can put the United Kingdom on notice and say, you're now part of this proceedings. What that means is if I tell you to do something, it's binding on you. Mm. That's, that's really interesting. Um, there was a section in, in the, the order that I read, um, and um, I didn't quite understand it, the risk of prejudice... What does that mean in terms of the protected rights yeah. under the convention? And how does that impact uh, Israel's military campaign in the Gaza Strip? So, so the prejudice relates to the, if we, if we go right back to Article 2 of the convention, the things that um, Israel is accused of doing, mm. and you switch them around in terms of the way the court looks at them as the rights, you, you have the right to be protected from those actions, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, it's those rights. And so what the court was trying to determine mm. was that if we do nothing, if we just allow Israel to carry on, if we do what that commentator that you were speaking about says, which is, you know, give them the green light to do this, yeah. will that mean that there'll be a prejudice to the rights of the uh, apparent victims, mm. right? And that's what it means. There's a risk of prejudice. And so in order to prevent or mitigate that risk of prejudice, we are going to, the ICJ are going to, issue provisional measures to prevent that from happening. Yeah. That's what it means. It means otherwise the rights that you're trying to protect will be prejudiced beyond being able to be dealt with later on. And, and, and that, yeah. by the way, sorry, yeah. that, by the way, is the domain of the International Criminal Court. So the ICJ is to determine disputes between two countries, and the dispute here is, is genocide happening or not happening? Yeah. So when that, the IC, the International Criminal Court is slightly different, what the International Criminal Court is an accountability and punishment structure. The job of the ICC is to say, we have sufficient evidence this war crime happened or this genocide happened, and we're going to hold people accountable for it and prosecute them. And so that's slightly that's slightly different. Okay. Um, when uh, we we spoke last time, and and you you uh, inferred that, or you 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 talked about it previously in in one of your answers that you are very optimistic about the law and about uh, how the law is progressing. Um, I haven't actually asked you this question. I probably should have asked you at the very beginning. Are you are you generally on balance positive about the ICJ judgment? I think the ICJ judgment was amazing, uh -huh. right? I think it was really good. I wish they had have issued a ceasefire order. Okay. I wish they had just done a unilateral ceasefire order. Uh -huh. And I, I kind of understand it. I understand it, understood even. Hmm. I understood why they might not do that. And I, I, I did have an alternative in my mind, which hmm. is that they should order a ceasefire on Israel and a cessation of hostilities for all parties. Yeah. Um, and this should suggest that the United Nations um, deploy peacekeepers on the ground to supervise that right. ceasefire. Now, they hadn't done that. Now, I, I think the situation on the ground in Gaza is so dire and the situation is so unprecedented that it required that kind of boldness from the International Court of Justice. Yeah. I think the reason the International Court of Justice didn't even do that was it didn't want to create an order which it felt would not be followed by various people because immediately on ordering, on ordering a ceasefire, 
eroding a cessation of hostilities, which amounts to more or less the same thing, um, you 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 have a position where the party, the state party to the proceedings, Israel, will say, what do we do if Hamas fires a missile, mm. right? So it becomes an unworkable order in that way. Now, Hamas had said um, just before the ICD judgment that it would abide by any order to cease hostilities. Mm. And unfortunately, we're not in that position. That never happened. So on balance, do I think that this is a good order? Yes, I think it's a good order. What I'm disappointed in is not the order of the ICJ and what the ICJ has done, is the international community around the way it's dealt with this order yeah. and the way it snubbed it and the way it said, I mean, like um, words from the United Kingdom that it's not helpful. I mean, what do they need to be helpful? Yeah. The fact that it has been analyzed by a significant number of senior judges who have determined that genocide is plausible is helpful and it should cause the United Kingdom, United States, to reflect on what it's doing. That's that's helpful. Yeah. What's not helpful is the United Kingdom and the uh, United States thinking that they are the arbitrators of international law and they are the arbitrators of what is right and wrong. It's just not true anymore. And it can't be true. Yeah. And, and it hasn't been true for a while. So I think it's really important that and we see the ICJ judgment in its context, but I'm not silly to think that um, without the international community working towards maintaining that rules-based order and um, without them doing that then it does become meaningless and not only does it become meaningless it becomes very dangerous because what you have um, what you have is you have people across the globe that are watching this yeah. looking at the breakdown of our international rules-based uh, accountability system and thinking well have we been lied to mm. you know have we been lied to all this time about what we thought was right what we thought was wrong the way that we thought that our Western states would protect us and other people. Is that not really what's happening? And whilst the governments, in terms of, um, are, are working to safeguard interests, their interests, popular, the popular view generally, not the populist view, the popular view generally, by looking at the number of people that are commenting on this, the people that have come out on the streets to protest against this, is that we can't allow this to happen. This is wrong, right? We, we've gone through 75 years of thinking about the Holocaust and what happened in Germany and thinking that we don't want that to happen again. And we thought we had created a system to prevent that from happening. Yeah. And was that a lie? We, as lawyers, cannot allow that to be a lie. But as you intimated before, there is a hypocritical relationship between the rules-based order and the, uh, the international uh, states, you know, the uh, international community, which are principally Western states, and the way they apply that rule-based order. And so, in many ways, was this interim judgment a success for the rules-based order? Or could you argue that it was really a success for something, an alternative to the rules-based order? It was, it was led by South Africa, a relatively developing, uh, poorer state in the global south, uh, those countries that bound themselves to that uh, to that uh, indictment at the very beginning and then during the, the last few weeks were not Western states. Western states have generally uh, stuck with the the line that the United States has imposed. Um, so, in many ways, is this a a victory for something other than the Western based rules based order? Yeah, I mean the rules based order. Is not the Western-based rules-based order. Right. The 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 rules-based order is the rules-based order. Right. The, the states that have signed up to the UN Charter are not just Western states. Mm. The states that have signed up to the International Criminal Court are not just Western states. Mm. The same for the ICJ. The states that have that as their 
superior court in the world yeah. aren't just Western states. The rules-based order exists. It's being dominated by Western states. Yeah. And, and actually what other states have allowed Western states to do is to be the arbitrator of human rights about the European Convention of Human Rights, the International Convention of Human Rights. And they've said, well, okay, these are democratic principles. Yeah. You want us to come in that direction. We'll come in that direction. And, and that's fine. And these are democratic principles, British values, American values. Let's do all of that. And slowly developing countries while they've been trying to develop their uh, ec economies, their welfare systems, their health systems, have been working towards um, implementing Western-based human rights values because they, they thought they worked and they thought they were true. It's only now that these countries have got to a position where they're thinking, well, hang on a minute, right? Have you just been using this to beat us up yeah. and tell us what to do? And actually, when it comes to one of your allies in the region where your own institution, one of the institutions that you've championed for the last 75 years, has said, well, actually, this is a plausible genocide, you suddenly go, well, that's not, we don't like that. We're going to turn our back from, backs from it. Yeah. We cannot, we as a people, cannot allow that to be where they leave this. So, yeah, it is a victory. It's a, it's a victory for um, states, third states, to actually think, you know, we have some... We have some um, investment in this rules-based order. It's not just about them, it's about all of us. And we're not prepared for it to just be about them. So this is not the first time South Africa's done this. It ended mm. apartheid. Mm. No, it's, not, it's not the first time that uh, the dominance of uh, Western people has been pushed away. And um, South Africa's been freed once. I think South Africa's trying to pass that freedom on to other states now. Tell you, but are you surprised at just how bipartisan uh, the uh, the consensus is here in the West. You know, we think about the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. We think about the Democrats and Republicans. There is just a, a denial of the rights of the Palestinians and an acceptance, a blind acceptance almost, of Israel's right to so-called defend itself. I mean, does that surprise you? That I mean, I, the Labour Party issued a statement yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, suggesting that. Uh, uh, the suspension of funds to UNRWA uh, was was correct and 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 it requires investigation. Um, does that does that surprise you in any way? No, not really. It doesn't yeah. surprise me. But I, I just want to talk about this in a slightly different way. Yeah. Um, so, Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, Rishi Sunak, leader leader of the Conservative Party, and our Prime Minister, David Lammy, uh, Lisa Nandy, yeah. uh, Emily Thornberry. James Cleverly, uh, Kimmy Badenoch. I, I hear their rhetoric, right? But mostly I don't believe it. I think they know the truth. And um, for whatever reason, which I can't speak to because I don't know, they are being dishonest, disingenuous, I think, about the position here. I don't think they're necessarily bad people. I don't feel that when they're presenting their arguments. In what I've seen in private and public, um, I don't think that they think that what is happening is right. I think they're towing a line. Personally, in my conversations that I've had with not just diplomats or politicians in my own country, but Western diplomats. Uh, I recently was in a meeting with 22 uh, ambassadors from 22 different countries, including mainly Western countries, actually, but also Middle Eastern countries, a private meeting. And in that meeting, I was really happy to hear that the diplomats themselves understood what was happening they knew what was happening they were upset sometimes at the about the government the position the governments were taking yeah but really 
I think what's important here is that I think it's just a matter of time, to be honest. I think the the more we see what Israel does on the ground, the more likely we'll see accountability structures come into place. I mean, you know, it was in 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 um the SAS inquiry here in in there's an inquiry going on at the moment about Afghanistan and alleged war crimes in the SAS. Yeah. Soldiers came forward to reveal what had happened in the in, in, in the program. Um the photographs from Abu Khraim, uh that wasn't an external fight. Soldiers, people from the inside came out and spoke against it. In my own experience of investigating uh, torture and crimes, quite often people on the inside of governments, of militaries, know that what's happening is not right. And that's where the information accountability starts. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not complete. I don't believe that our politicians here are closing their eyes to it. I think they're seeing what they're doing. I and mean, I'm hoping that they get to a position where they can start stopping what's happening, start to stop what's happening in in, in, in Gaza. Um, I just want them to do it quickly. I, I think they're leaving it for far too long. I mean, the pr where the pressure comes on for them to take the positions that they're taking, uh, I can guess, but I wouldn't like to say it. So, Teo, plot out for me what happens next from a legal perspective. Just what are we expecting to see in the next months and years? So hopefully what we'll see is a immediate and fast reduction in military operations in Gaza by Israel. Mm. Notwithstanding that, I think we will see um, uh, further provisional orders if Israel doesn't slow down what it's doing. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that more states come on board the uh, proceedings at the International Court of Justice to intervene on the side of South Africa. I think that um, the International Criminal Court will issue arrest warrants for senior Israelis in the next few weeks. Really? Yeah, I do. I think that I, I don't see how it can survive without doing that now that we have plausible genocide, um, a plausible genocide ruling from the ICJ. Um, so I think the within within the, the concept of genocide, you have a series of war crimes, and so I see that I don't, I don't think the ICJ will necessarily yet make a arrest warrant for genocide, but certainly for significant war crimes, I think for senior personnel um, with regards to uh, Israel. I think the United Kingdom and United States and a number of other Western states run the risk of being brought into proceedings at the ICJ. Um, I'm, 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 hoping that, um, I'm hoping that the support for Israel slows down in the sense that weapons stop being sent out there. That's what I hope will happen. Um, I, think, I think that's where we're heading. I think that's where we're heading. You said earlier on that you've lodged some complaints to Scotland Yard. Can, can you explain that to me? What, what have you done? Yeah, so um, as part of the International Centre of Justice for Palestinians' own investigation into war crimes, we've been collating evidence into war crimes. Mm -hmm. um, from, and the evidence has come from British citizens that were in Gaza but have left Gaza, who have brought with them photographs, videos, um, documents about the allegations that we've been talking about in terms of war crimes. Mm -hmm. And... Um, we got to a position where we felt there was sufficient evidence to provide that information to Scotland Yard as a complaint. The complaint was not um, a prima facie complaint in that we had sufficient evidence to prosecute individuals, mm -hmm. but it was sufficient evidence to give Scotland Yard reasonable grounds to initiate their own investigation. And that means arresting individuals, questioning individuals, searching their property for additional evidence. Um, and the people that we uh, suggested to Scotland Yard or we identified as being uh, responsible or having liability criminal liability for that 
were um, uh, Israeli politicians, clearly, people like Benjamin Netanyahu, Ben Gavir, Smotrich, and others, um, and generals in, in Israel. So we named those in our complaint, we named those individuals. We named nine British citizens that went from the UK to fight with the IDF in, in Israel. So we've named those individuals and we've asked Scotland Yard to investigate those individual people. Um, and very importantly, four British ministers that we say are in some way complicit and have secondary liability, accessory liability for uh, war crimes in Israel. And, um, and, in Gaza, sorry. and what's, the, what's the process? When does Scotland Yard have to come back to you? So the process is fluid. Mm. Um, it's not a case of whether it'll come back and necessarily say that's it, that's the end of it. Right. Because we continue our investigation. Right. And so as we continue our investigation, we're providing further and further evidence to right. Scotland Yard of the issues that we're, we're raising. So it, it, it becomes quite a dynamic process. So if Scotland Yard say, well, actually, we, we, we still would like A, B and C bit of material, our investigators will find A, B and C yeah. if it's available, of course, yeah. and provide that to Scotland Yard. So it's an ongoing process. And you've made a general call to lawyers around the world mm. to join you in uh, this sort of litigation that you're, you're starting. Explain again that, that to me, please. So, so whilst I have faith, as you know, in the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court. Yeah. I, I'm not stupid enough to rely on two single institutions to do what is quite a difficult task, actually. Yeah. And so um, what I noted was that there was, there was and is a significant momentum from lawyers across the globe to um, do something in terms of holding uh, alleged Israeli war criminals accountable. Um, and also, really interestingly, from police law enforcement agencies in different countries across the... Some surprising, by the way, and I don't want to reveal which countries, because what I've now done is I've approached governments in uh, different... This is different from a development from the last time I spoke to you. Yeah. I've approached governments in uh, a number of countries, and I've asked them if they will allow me to provide my evidence to their chief prosecutors and chief police agents, chief of police agencies that are either versed with um, war crimes or if they don't have the relevant domestic legislation um, would be able to discuss with me a mechanism to move forward. And I've been really surprised that there's been a lot of interest in this, right? And so um, what I wanted to do was two things. One is I wanted um, lawyers in various jurisdictions to meet with me or contact me so that I can provide them with the evidence that we've collated here in London. Um, and secondly, um, and I'm continually, and, and I'm continuing to provide that evidence from top down, um, meeting with um, even on at some degree some prime ministers of some countries which we've met recently, um, their justice ministries, their foreign officers, and arranging to be able to speak to their law enforcement infrastructure to be able to provide them with the evidence. And, and I, I think we'd, why this is important is that we can't allow allegations like this to slip through the net. We, we, we need there to be a global infrastructure where if there is, and, and these agencies can only work if there's evidence of criminal acts. If I, if I just said to them, look, you know, this guy over here has done something wrong, can you go arrest him? They're not going to do anything. Mm. So they will be take hold of the evidence, they will analyze the evidence, they will apply it to their own local um, national legal framework. Yeah. And if there is uh, legislation available to issue arrest warrants domestically for either people in their jurisdiction that have committed war crimes or people that they feel have damaged victims from their jurisdiction. So they may be a Palestinian 
dual national from that country, uh-huh. um, then they could u- trigger their domestic legislation um, to do something. You know, th- this is such an interesting track that one state in particular asked me to sit with their um, legal team, their, 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 their prosecutorial team, and um, devise potentially changing the constitution and actually changing the legal code so that they could dis- so they could be enabled to prosecute war crimes. So it's not it's not it's not the case that um, we have to rely on a limited number of countries for accountability. Listen, I'm a British trained lawyer in the United Kingdom. I'm a solicitor, an officer of the Court of England and Wales. I've been taught that my duty is to uphold the rule of law and the principles of justice. That doesn't mean for some people. That means for everybody. This is this is a fundamental principle. For a British lawyer to have. It's a fundamental principle for lawyers across the globe. I don't believe any police officer, I don't believe any uh, prosecutor ever got into their job to protect alleged war criminals. I don't believe that for a second. Mm. I think, and, and, and also in Israel, you know, um, I don't believe that everybody, well, we know, we know from the protests in Israel, mm. Israelis themselves are becoming to some degree distraught about what's happening. Mm. Uh, Netanyahu's popularity has dropped through the floor. Uh, domestically, he knows that his time's limited. I think he should learn quite quickly that internationally his time's limited too. Uh, there will be a structure of accountability. Tave, I've known you for quite some time. Um, I mean, for over 25 years, probably. Um, I've never seen you more angry, Tayeb. I mean, you, you're a calm lawyer, of <laughs> course, well, but yeah. um, are you angry? Like, does what's happened? Is the, the spin that's come out of the last couple of days, I mean, does that anger you? Um, I tell you, as, a, as a, just as a, a normal citizen, a normal human being. Yeah, I mean, um, if, if you if you if you believe in something, yeah. right, and that's being ripped away from you from the people that tell you to believe in it, your own government, mm. your own establishment, then that's going to anger you, right? And and what's true here is not that it's being ripped away; they're destroying it. And for my part. I'm not going to let them do that. It's really important to me that the principles that we have um, that allow us to operate, you know, that allow me to buy my shopping in Morrison's or Sainsbury's, <laughs> that allow me to buy mobile phones, that allow me to drive my car, that allow me to walk down the street in safety, right? <laughs> that allow Muslims to practice their religion in this country, that allow Jews to um, be safe in this country. Because <laughs> in large part, we all are. I, I cannot be part of an infrastructure that tears away that fabric so that Muslims and Jews and Christians and Hindus and people of the minority groups have to fear that when they're targeted, there's no accountability for them. And and I, I put it in a recent post, and you're right, I am angry about it. Um, I put it in a recent post of mine that my job, the way I see it, is to where, where these minority groups, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, whoever they are, face tyranny, my job is to stand in front of that. Mm. And I'll be damned if I won't do that because I'm going to. And that's why you're seeing anger in me right now. Because the people that should be doing this are not doing it. I've got one last question uh, from uh, uh, audience participation. So I sent out on Twitter that I'm going to be uh, speaking to you and uh, I asked for questions. And Timothy um, responded and asked, uh, what are the legal, what are we legally allowed to now say Mm. about Israel, about Zionism, about genocide after this judgment that we weren't allowed possibly to say prior to it. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but 
like what what's what's happened from a just from a conversational perspective as a result of his judgment if anything i mean the the single difference is that the allegations of genocide mm. made by south africa are plausible that's it so. that's the main i mean that's a difference of some magnitude right right but it's different so before this you would only be able to say allegations of genocide and there was no determination as to whether there was any merit to them. The difference now is that there is merit to the allegations, so they're now considered to be plausible. And that's a big difference. And I, I do want to say this, and I think it's important to say this, and it goes into what I was saying just a moment ago about standing in front of tyranny. There needs to be a significant um, awareness of the difference between um, Israel as a state and Jewish people that live there, and Muslim people that live there too, mm. right? And um, we're not, to, we, in the same way as in the United Kingdom, people go out on the streets in the hundreds of thousands to protest against the government when it makes a decision. The same is true for the state of Israel. This is not, South Africa's attack is not an attack on the people in Israel, regardless of whether they're supporting or not supporting the government. It's an attack on the policy of the Israeli government, mm. which is taking uh, place in Gaza on Palestinian people. And, and it's really important to make that distinction. And, and I make that distinction now because lots of people, when they are accusing uh, people like me of uh, supporting uh, South Africa's case or talking about these things, the easy remark is to say you're anti-Semitic. Mm. Um, it's not, it's not, that's not helpful. Mm. When you are wanting to protect Jewish people in Israel from war crimes as well, the you want to what, what's the ultimate objective is to break the cycle of violence what's the main cause for that cycle of violence uh is a symmetrical system of accountability in palestine and israel where if where and we're seeing it in magnified now where it's despite the icj making the determination that it's made the interim determination that it's made you still have a position where people are providing uh, Israel with exceptionalism, with impunity, uh, and with a lack of accountability. But when you have seven, an allegation of seven UNRWA officials, you have a massive international reaction to it. That imbalance is what causes the cycle of violence. That imbalance is what causes Palestinians to attack Israelis in Israel and Israel to continue to be able to attack Palestinians in Palestine. That breaking that cycle of violence is the only answer we have. And it can't be a military answer. It has to be a political answer. And it's time that our political um, leaders saw that, understood that, and actually engaged with it. Thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website, thinkinmuslim.com, to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.